This episode is brought to you by Cabot Creamery, celebrating 100 years of being a dairy farm family-owned cooperative. Learn more at cabotcheese.coop. That's cabotcheese.coop. This week on a special bonus episode of Meat in 3, we find out why the bacon, egg, and cheese, that classic bodega sandwich, is popping up on menus of New York's trendiest restaurants. We did a few iterations of it, and I was trying to fancify it. We tried the sausage, egg, and cheese, and then we tried to put charmoula sauce on it. We used feta cheese, and we're just like taking ingredients of the Mediterranean, if you will, and try to infuse it. But uh, for me, it was like a car wreck. Tune in to hear about the wild journey of the bacon, egg, and cheese from deli to fine dining on Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Why Food Podcast, the podcast about food innovators, entrepreneurs, and um, people who are also career changers. So today our guest is Erin Hutcherson. Um, I'm your co-host, Valerie Lomas, and our other co-host, Ethan Frisch. He is actually um, somewhere on the other side of the world. Right now, he's in Afghanistan, I believe, sourcing spices for his company, Burlap and Barrel. You can actually follow along on his adventures on Instagram at Burlap and Barrel. Um, but Aaron, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah. So, I mean, you're a food writer, you're a blogger, but you actually studied something like way different in school and had a whole different career before being in the food industry, right? Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, you were, you, you went to Washington University in St. Louis, which happens to be like a hyper competitive <laughs> university. Like the acceptance rate is really, really competitive. And you studied systems engineering. Yes. So for people unfamiliar with systems engineering, it's also called like industrial engineering or operations research at other universities, but it's all about mathematical modeling of any sort of system, be it like a manufacturing line or an ecosystem, or even it could be for a restaurant in terms of like, how many cashiers do we need? How many lines do we need? How many cooks do we need? How long does it take? Um, and then you can model all that with math mathematical formulas and find the best way, most optimal way to construct something. Okay, so mathematical modeling. Yes. Did you always love math? I did. I am a big math nerd. Um, Excel is one of my best friends. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I went to a math and science high school, actually. Um, so I've been good with math since I was a child. And I sort of found my way into studying it in college because I had just been good at it for so long. Right. But I never thought about if I had actually wanted to do that as my career. Right. So, I mean, you grew up in the Midwest. You grew up in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Then you, you stayed in the Midwest for college. You were in St. Louis. Then you went to graduate school, also at WashU in St. Louis, and yes. you studied finance because more math, right? Yes, more math. Okay, <laughs> but maybe like a little less theoretical and a little, a little less more practical. Like actually apply to something instead of just looking at all these various variables and 
numbers disappeared long ago. Like after <laughs> the first year of studying, there were practically no more numbers in what I was looking at. And so it just sort of lost its luster for me a little bit. Okay, but so how did you end up in New York City, where you where you live and you work now and you have for several years, right? Yeah, so I came to New York right after college and worked on Wall Street um, for Merrill Lynch. I was doing portfolio wealth management, uh, so more math <laughs> and numbers. Um, because that was sort of the thing that you're supposed to do. It's like you go to school, you study finance. And then you, you go make job. some money. Exactly. Portfolio. So you were helping other people get rich, but you were also cashing some nice size checks yourself, right? They were moderate size checks. <laughs> moderate level. for Wall Street. <laughs> <laughs> Wall Street 10 years ago. Yes. Oh, okay. Got mm-hmm. it. So that was, I mean, was that like before or after the huge So it was right in the crash. middle of all of that. So I interned there in 2008. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got an offer in the fall. And then literally a week later, um, uh, we learned in the news that Bank of America was buying Merrill Lynch. So all of us that had worked together were freaking out a little bit. It's like, do we still have jobs But offers? you did. But I did. Wow. Thankfully, um, so it all worked out for me, but. Okay. So you became a New Yorker Mm -hmm. and you were working on wall street, which is kind of like the dream. Right. And I bet like everyone back home was so proud of you and you were real. you like, how did you feel though? Were you really content in this job, you know, helping make other people, helping make rich people richer? (laughs) (laughs) Well, when you put it like that, I mean. That's something I also would think about. It's like, great, I'm helping the wealthy become even more wealthy. And sort of, unfortunately, I was doing, playing a part in sort of broadening the wealth gap in America. Um, But also, if you look at it from the other side, like they're all also like nonprofits and everything that invest with in Wall Street and um, in the stock market. So there is some good that can be done with investments. But it was definitely something that I thought about and sort of rolled through my head every once in a while. It's like, am I happy with what I'm doing? Um, and is this something that I'm proud of? Right. And I think that I think that's kind of typical for a lot of us millennials, right? It's like we get this angst, like quarter life crisis, whatever you want to call it, where it's like, you know, you wake up and you're like, wait a minute, like, am I happy? Like, mm-hmm. what am I, what am I doing with my <laughs> life? Right. So at, at some point, did you kind of do a mathematical model? Did your brain go back to that systems engineering? Like, okay, how am I spending my time? And is it getting me to where I want to go? Is it making me happy? Like what, what did you, what were you negotiating in your head that, that enabled you to make the decision to move from Merrill Lynch to the next step in your career? So, um, at first, like literally five months into working, um, I realized that I needed something to do in my free time, uh, because growing up all through school, I'd always been very involved in various extracurricular activities. Um, and so I wasn't used to having my nights and weekends completely free. Uh, so that's when I first started my blog, actually, The Hungry Hutch. 
uh, I was like, oh, these people have these things called blogs. It was 2009. <laughs> I was like, I can do this too. <laughs> uh, because I had always had an interest in food, but it was always one of those things like, oh, I'll go work in finance, make a bunch of money, and then when I retire, I'll go to culinary school or do something to sort of make food more of uh, a, an important part of my life. But it was also like, after starting that, I sort of kept going through the motions and I was like, oh, I actually like this a lot more than what I'm doing in my day to day. And after a year or two of working in finance uh, and my boss would always be like, hey, Aaron, you should get your CFA, which is this um, sort of designation certificate that helps a lot of people sort of get to the next level in the industry. But I would always be like, mm, no, <laughs> I'm not interested in doing that at all. And I would look around. I was like, I don't want my boss's job. I don't want anyone else's job in the company. Um, so it's just like, well, this is not what I'm supposed to be doing for the rest of my career. This is not what I want to be doing for the rest of my career. So it's time to figure out what it is that I want to do. And I had already started this food blog. So I was like, let's explore this a little bit more. So what did you do? So I started by initially just taking like a recreational um, class at culinary school. And it was once a week on Saturdays and it lasted for a few months. And I was like, this will be my very first intro at sort of a, dipping the toe into the water of cooking and the culinary world. Right. And that's that's still quite a commitment to mm -hmm. like your Saturday when you're working, you know, on Wall Street, which is like an inherently stressful, you know, corporate you know, position. So if you were able, did you miss any classes? I don't think so. Okay. I may have been late for one or two. <laughs> <laughs> it started, I'm not a morning person and it started at like 9am or something like that on Saturday morning. Right. So you did that on Saturdays for like several months mm -hmm. and you stuck through it and you were like, Hey, I really like this. So yeah. you decided to. So then I decided to do the full program. Um, I decided to do it part-time still so that I could make some money and pay for culinary school. Um, but I did it on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday nights for about six months or so. So I would go to work. Um, and on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I would like do everything I could to rush out by five o'clock so I could make it to class on time at 545 at the French Culinary Institute. Oh, wow. Okay. So I think this is interesting because I think you know, how you mentioned you were always doing extracurriculars when you were in school and you went to this, you know, really competitive university where I think a lot of people might have labeled, you know, people who end up at a place like that, like uh, a high achieving person. Yes. So you've got this full time Wall Street job and you decide you're going to spend your nights as you you're calling it a part-time culinary student but it was a full it was a, a full-time program in the sense that you graduated with a full um certificate yeah. in culinary arts yes yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah i've always been a bit of an overachiever <laughs> are you still aaron 
Yes. yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, so I guess let's talk a little bit about what you're doing now because you have a full-time job right now. Mm-hmm. You are a food writer with the Michelin Guide. And yes. I, I definitely want to hear a little mm-hmm. bit more about what that means. But you also, you still have your blog mm-hmm. 10 years later, and it gets more popular by the day. You run your social media accounts. You work as an influencer. You do work with brands. And you also do freelance writing. <laughs> yes. Uh, Did I miss anything? Yeah. That covers it all. And I try to sleep every once in a while. And you try to sleep every once in a while. So, you know, it's kind of fascinating because, like, you still have your full-time job and, like, multiple part-time jobs. So how did you end up at Michelin Guide? And what is it exactly that you do for them? And that's your, like, you consider that your 9 to 5, right? Yes. Even though your hours are probably not 9 to 5. Correct. Um, So I ended up at the Michelin Guide because of an old colleague, actually, Right out of culinary school, I interned at a food magazine called Food Arts. Uh, and one of my coworkers there, um, we were having dinner a couple of years ago, and she was like, hey, I might be hiring someone on the team to help me with this. Would you be interested? And I was like, sure. <laughs> <laughs> someone on the team to help with something? Yeah, sure. Why not? I mean, I always got to keep my options open. Exactly. <laughs> So uh, about two years ago, Michelin launched a website um, to sort of go beyond the starred restaurants and reviews that everyone sort of knows them for. So no, I do not inspect restaurants. I do not have anything to do with who gets a Michelin star. Um, But they launched a general editorial website where it's chef profiles and interviews and restaurant openings and sort of all the more editorial food content that people know and love. Right. Okay. And you've recently, you've been spending a lot of time in a city that I love and that I used to live in, Los Angeles. Yes. Tell me why, why I'm always finding you in Los Angeles on Instagram. (laughs) Uh, Sometimes it was because of work. Um, So we do travel to all of the guide launch events. Um, So in June, the Michelin Guide in California was announced, uh, so I went for that. And then most recently, it was just personal. I went for a friend's wedding. I was like, if I'm going to go here, I might as well spend a few days and eat at all the great restaurants that I can find. Yeah. Okay. So I am I am a little curious because you mentioned that, you know, the work that you do, it's it's editorial, it's chef profiles, it's, it's you know, looking at restaurants to an extent. Do you... Do you know the people who give out the stars? <laughs> and do you get this question a lot? I may or may not <laughs> know someone involved with the inspections. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, no, they keep that all sort of very secluded and sort of off to the side. Got it. Got it. Okay. So, I mean, it sounds like your work there would be a plenty to keep, you know, a normal person pretty busy but Mm -hmm. you're you're kind of like a a super person (laughs) so you've done a couple of freelance pieces recently um both of which I read and really enjoyed one was actually with taste cooking where you talked about Lowry's this season all seasoning salt Mm -hmm. um what was like your inspiration for that piece and where do you like when you're when you're doing freelance pieces, like what's your inspiration and and how do you end up like pitching those pieces and getting those pieces? So with the Laurie's piece, it's um, 
a seasoned salt that I grew up with, um, and it was sort of used in everything, and that over time I also realized that it a lot of um, people, also predominantly African American and Black families, had it in their kitchens as well, um, and it was such a huge part of African-American foodways in our cooking and our food and recipes, but no one had really told its story. And so what I try to do um, is try to give a voice and uh, writing this information down because there's so much to talk about um, in terms of the history and the impact um, and the relevance of so many things. But for me, particularly being uh, one of the handful of black food writers that I feel like it's my right and duty to record that somewhere and share that with the world just so it doesn't go by the wayside and disappear. Right. And so was that also kind of your like inspiration and what drove you with the Washington Post piece that I think it got a lot of traction. It ended up being really popular. Tell us a little bit about that. So it all started actually Christmas um, this most recent year where I was sitting down with my grandmother and I don't know how we got on the topic, but we were talking about biscuits and gravy and she was just like, I don't understand why people love it so much, et cetera. It's like, I grew up, we ate it all the time every day. And I was like, really? (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. And I took note of that and I like just sort of kept it in my back pocket for months actually. And then eventually it was like, is there more to this? Like my grandmother literally ate it every day growing up and now it's on these restaurant menus everywhere. And sort of what, how did it get to be that way? And like, how did it get from this? um, Almost like a staple, just something that, that people like your grandmother and Mm -hmm. my grandmother also, right. Ate on a daily basis and now it's like a star of the menu mm-hmm. right <laughs> mm-hmm. so i pitched it to the washington post and they accepted it so i found out the history and it started as a very like people need to eat and get fuel to have calories and energy to work on farms and everything or work in logging mills which is where it started in appalachia and then it sort of migrated with those people all over the country um, and it was very much like we're eating this at home and it's just making do to just give people something to eat, some sort of sustenance. But now it's on menus all over the country in so many different iterations and even like more fancified versions of it. So <laughs> <laughs> I like that more fancified versions of it. So, I mean, what I think another thing that's pretty like unique and cool about like the type of food writer that you are is, you know, you're doing these kind of like historical cultural, really thoughtful pieces. You're doing chef profiles, but you're also an amazing recipe writer, which we really get to see in your blog, The Hungry Hutch, that was actually nominated for a Savora Award for best weeknight cooking blog. (laughs) (laughs) So like 10 years of blogging and now you're getting like one of like the highest, um, you know, nominations Mm -hmm. in like the food blogging award world. Did you imagine that that would happen to you this year? Not at all. (laughs) Uh, I feel like I've 
nominated myself for the award. Um, I love that. Ever since yes. the very beginning of whenever I found out about them. And of course, it nothing ever came of it or never happened. Um, and then I remember this year I saw it. I was like, all right, let me just try and do it. Because in the past, I would also like get try to get other friends nominate me because I think it helps if you have multiple nominations from a bunch of different people. I was like, I'll just do it see what happens if it happens great if not and then all of a sudden boom <laughs> <laughs> right boom is right so like i mean i guess like let's talk just a little bit about your blog um you mentioned that you started it when you were working on wall street because mm-hmm. you wanted a hobby yes. but you've stuck with it i have over all of these years <laughs> from like going to culinary school to where you are now um mm-hmm. Like, I mean, like I'm, I'm a blogger also. And at times it can be hard when you've got so many other things happening. So like, how are you able to just kind of stick with that? Hmm. Um, at this point, like I don't post the most frequently. (laughs) I know some people (laughs) do like multiple recipes a week or I do a couple of month. <laughs> I think that's I think that's a good a good steady consistent it's still good. number. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. That's what I feel like too. <laughs> yeah. Um but it's something that I I enjoy even as much work as it is and as much time and effort I've put into it. I feel like it's one of my children. <laughs> like <laughs> right. I can't just abandon it. <laughs> Consistency is the name of the game. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously we'll find weeknight meals, but like Tell me a little bit more just about like the kind of food that we'll find on your blog, The Hungry Hutch. So I grew up eating a lot of soul food and also I grew up in the Midwest. So there's lots of meat and potatoes and casseroles and stuff. Um, And that sort of informed, I think, the base of my cooking and that it's just straightforward, simple and good. But also like I've gone to culinary school and I've worked in restaurants and I like to explore different ingredients and flavors. So, um, every once in a while, I'll just throw something different that you may not have thought of. Like if I have a mac and cheese recipe that I really love and I um, put in smoked Gouda, it's like, that's not, I don't think a common thing you would find in most people's macaroni and cheese no, recipes. No, but it sounds delicious. But it's delicious. Like that little bit of smokiness. It's high. <laughs> it's almost like throwing out like the bacon without the bacon, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> So it's all food that you're familiar with. You just either execute it very well um, or with an ingredient that might surprise you and just take it to a different level. It's elevated weeknight cooking <laughs> for the home cook. Yes. I'm, I, just <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that works. I like that. Because <laughs> people ask me all the time, like, what is it? Like, well, I don't know. It's just things I like to cook at home because that's how it started. It was right. literally just me chronicling whatever I cooked at home and I would sometimes be like oh this doesn't really taste good but I would share it (laughs) anyway that's not the case anymore but um over time it's just like I like have a lot of different interests like I did a pernil which is like a roast pork common in Latin America I do mac and cheese um I've done some Asian inspired dishes done some like classically French inspired dishes so a little bit of everything a little bit of everything all right we're gonna take a quick break but we're gonna come back uh because we have a little bit more to talk about with aaron hutcherson stay tuned (laughs) 
Habit Creamery is proud to be celebrating 100 years making the world's finest dairy products. Cabot's award-winning cheddars and other dairy products stand apart because of their farmers' tireless dedication to quality and freshness, to healthy land and a sustainable future. A century after they started this journey, Cabot's farmer owners still know what matters most, family and community. The simple truth that we're stronger together than we are apart. That delicious products are the reward of a job well done. That when you love what you do this much, the best is always still to come. Join Heritage Radio Network on Monday, November 11th for a raucous feast to toast a decade of food radio. Our 10th anniversary Bacchanal is a rare gathering of your favorite chefs, mixologists, storytellers, thought leaders, and culinary masterminds. We'll salute the inductees of the newly minted HRN Hall of Fame, who embody our mission to further equity, sustainability, and deliciousness. Join us to explore the beautiful Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, where you'll taste and imbibe to your heart's content, and bid on once-in-a-lifetime experiences and tasty gifts for any budget at our silent auction. Join the party. Tickets are available now at heritageradionetwork.org gala. So we are back on Why Food Podcast with today's guest, food writer, food blogger, and former mathemati- mathematician, financier, Erin <laughs> uh, Hutcherson. So uh, we've talked quite a bit about um, your Midwestern roots and how you ended up on Wall Street and then eventually being a food writer for the Michelin Guide and your blog. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I would kind of like to do is maybe go back a little, right? Because you went to what was then the French Culinary Institute and now the International Culinary Center. Yes. And, uh, you know, while you were there, you I think you had an idea that you wanted to end up in food media. Mm-hmm. But it's something that, you know, there are some there's some gatekeepers or <laughs> it's, it, it's a competitive industry to kind of Yes. break into even much more competitive than finance uh, coming from the guy that went to like an amazing university and has multiple degrees from there um, but yeah so I mean so you graduated mm-hmm. and you did not go straight into food media I mean you had your blog which was like creating your own media but what did you do when you finished culinary school well I actually ended up with an internship um, at a magazine so uh, it was sort of my first taste and learned about copywriting and fact checking and like all the editorial marks because it was back when print was still alive. Was that a was it paid or was it kind of like you got to you got to do your dues of these unpaid internships? It was an unpaid internship. Um, and I knew that going into it, but I was like, OK, I can do this for a little bit. Right. I worked in finance. I'd saved up money. Um, it's like, OK, I could put up with this for a little while but also I didn't want to go without any income for three or four months so I ended up working at a restaurant that sadly no longer exists called Northern Spy um, in the East Village here in New York City on the weekends so I worked at the magazine five days a week and then on the weekends I cooked brunch Uh, so I did that seven days a week for about four months so like no days off, mm-hmm. right? Hashtag no days off. And you were, you were a line cook. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that. 
I'm always intrigued by this because this is like this whole other world of mm-hmm. cookery and and uh, the food industry. So I think a lot of people, once they sort of go to culinary school and finish, they have this sense that like, oh, I know what I'm doing. I can work in a restaurant. It'll be fine. Well, uh, you're very quickly reminded that that is not the case. Um, it was by far the toughest job that I've ever had. Wait, like tougher than Merrill Lynch? Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. How so? Because I, I mean, I just envision like corporate America. Well, not envision. I was in it for briefly. Mm-hmm. But like the pressure, right, of... Um, just the pressure of not making any mistakes and meeting crazy deadlines and um, all that jazz, right? Well, but- you have that same pressure in restaurants, except it's much more fast-paced because, like, oh, I have the pressure of all these people that want to get fed within the next 30 minutes to an hour, whatever the time frame may be. And it's there's a lot of inputs. Um, you have to, like, constantly have new orders being taken in while you're working on what has already been in and then trying to start these new ones. Um, and it's all very rapid fire because it was a very popular restaurant. Um, so yeah, there's lots of stress and pressure to execute and it's very repetitive as well. Cause like you have to put out thousands of kale salads <laughs> every day. <laughs> right. So I guess that's that's different than what you were doing in culinary school, right? Mm-hmm. So like maybe in culinary school, you you learned a technique and you did it a few times, but working in the, the restaurant, restaurant... You have to do it hundreds of times over and over uh, and produce at the same level and consistently um, for the guests because it's all about the guest experience at the end of the day and they want to... Like one person shouldn't have something that tastes completely different from the other person if it's the same dish. Interesting, right? And so, I mean, did you feel that pressure when you were in culinary school? That same like pressure to like perform and because I mean, again, right back to your like high achieving, like academic history, Mm -hmm. right? Did you feel that pressure in culinary school or did you still kind of view it at the time as like, oh, this is my outlet from the pressure of my job and the whatever it is that you were feeling like that complete lack of satisfaction in your job. I'm the type of person where I always want to do well at whatever it is I'm working on. So I felt that sort of internal pressure to like do a good job, but, um, there was less, um, external pressure because it like, yes, your professors and everyone wants, or your instructors want you to do well, but, there wasn't quite as much of the um, oversight of like the restaurant needs you to do this and everyone else is relying on you because you're working as, as a team with the other cooks in the back of house. Right, right. Okay. So that's it. That's an interesting perspective for it, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah, so you, you were doing the chef life. You were interning at a magazine and... How long did that last for before you really were able to break into food media, which I'm sure so many people want to do. And a lot of people, you know, I hear it all the time. People go to culinary school and they're like, I want to be the next Anthony Bourdain. I have a I have a friend who did that. Right. He was in his 30s and he was like he was a nomad just kind of traveling the world. And he was like, I'm going to culinary school because I want to be the next Anthony Bourdain. Mm -hmm. So like (laughs) 
it's something a lot of people want to do, but it's obviously a very tricky thing to actually accomplish. Yeah, it took me about four years before I got a full-time job at a media company. And even then, it wasn't necessarily editorial when I started. I was on the product team for a website called Tasting Table um, and like working on an app and doing things like that. But then I sort of weaseled my way <laughs> into writing uh, because I had obviously had an interest in it and I had had some experience doing it before through various internships. Um, I also interned at the Food Network at one point. Um, so thankfully, uh, some of the editors there were open and receptive and encouraging of me to write. So I got to do more and more of that over time. Uh, and then now I'm currently at the Michelin Guide and doing it full time. Right. OK, so let's go back because I love how you I mean, you said weasel. I, I say you kind of like found a open window and like crawled through. I love that. So you were working on this app for tasting table. Were you using your engineering or product side mm. of things? Were you using that engineering background? And is that what you were kind of selling on your resume? A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you're laughing about this. I feel like that's a story. I, well, because in the food world, there are very few people. And I, this is something I've done in other positions as well um like i have the business background i have the technical skills um and i also have the culinary background and the restaurant experience and there's very few people that have both of those um and so for a lot of the sort of more like operational and business and product and tech related jobs in food i've had an easier time, I think, than most sort of getting them just because of the experience and background that I have. And so, yes, <laughs> I mean, at the time, I would not have told this to people, but like, yeah, I for sure sort of use that to my advantage. And I was like, I'm just going to get into the door here and see what happens and see what I can do. That's brilliant. That really is. I love that. Like use whatever, like whatever tools you have in your toolkit, like food related or not, use those to get in the door because that is probably the hardest part about breaking into this industry is literally getting your foot in the door. Mm -hmm. And you got like your whole body and a salary, a whole <laughs> and like a paycheck every two weeks, right? Yes. And you were able then to like somehow end up doing editorial content with mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's awesome. Um, so we normally end by doing like some rapid fire questions. All right. <laughs> oh my gosh. You just up. like tensed up. Relax. This is like fun. Um, and often it's like not even that rapid because we tend to digress and <laughs> talk about other things. But um, yeah, so we'll just like get started. Okay. Favorite fall vegetable. Delicata squash. Why? <laughs> this is the di this is the part where <laughs> the I digress. Because um, <laughs> I'm curious. You said that with such confidence and authority. Well, I think they just started coming out maybe a week or two ago in the farmer's market. Um, and it's one that I actually just first got introduced when I was a line cook at Northern Spy. And we would roast them for the kale salad that they were doing for. <laughs> this You're going to have to make this kale salad for me one day. <laughs> The recipe is on the blog. It's on the blog. He's like, make it. I can make it for myself. But yeah, it's um, you know, similar to most squash, but like when you roast it, it gets nice and sweet and 
buttery and um, the skin is edible so you don't even have to peel it at all so it's easy just like scoop out the seeds and chop it up and it's good and easy and versatile. Also sounds easy for line cooks. Yes. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Best meal you've had that was under $10. I was in LA this weekend uh, and I went to a taqueria called Sonora Town. Uh, I think it was in downtown somewhere. I don't, I'm not familiar with the LA neighborhoods, but uh, it's like homemade flour tortillas. And I got a carne asada taco that's like cooked on the grill. So it has some nice char and smoky flavors. And it's legitimately one of the best tacos I've ever had. Oh, my goodness. And now I want to go to LA just to eat tacos. Yes. <laughs> okay, what about favorite restaurant in New York City? My go-to that I usually tell people is Uncle Boone's. Uh, It's a Thai restaurant in the Soho neighborhood, and it's just delicious flavors. Every time I go there, I'm always blown away just by how good everything is. Uh, Another one of my favorites is Fancy Nancy. Uh, It's in Brooklyn. It's like a neighborhood restaurant, but it's owned and run by two uh, of the alums from Northern Spy, and it's just very good food that you want to eat. I love that food that you want to eat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I like, I think you might like inadvertently be touching on like something that's like an interesting concept that, that I've noticed in restaurants, I guess in recent times, right? The modernity of something being like so interesting or so beautiful mm-hmm. that it's like something to marvel at or something to be intrigued by. But do you want to eat it? Exactly. I don't it, like. I don't know. And you know, you're on you're on Instagram all the time, mm-hmm. and often it's like you see stuff and you're like, oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> but that's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, is this something I would want to eat? And like the test I use is like, did I eat all of it? And then did I want more? And then did I think about it the next day? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's also how I approach the recipes I create and share in my blog. It's that I just want food that you want to eat and one and also that it's worth your time and investment uh, of money because like I don't want you to buy these ingredients and then at the end of the day you're eating this like mm, I don't really like it it's like that's not good for anyone <laughs> <laughs> right right no it, it's so interesting because um I went to a panel earlier this week um by Les Dames d'Escoffier about um food trends it was called the next big bite and in the opening address Deb Perlman from Spitten Kitchen she was telling us you know like trends that we should look out for and one of them she said she said recipes that work <laughs> right um and like yeah I think that's like really so important like especially when you're running your blog because it's typically a one-man show right Mm -hmm. you don't have a team of editorial assistants and test kitchen assistants or culinary producers on television shows that are going to be like running through every detail and making sure everything's just right so um I love that that's like something that that you believe in also Mm -hmm. all right so last question (laughs) <laughs> I can't tell if you look tense or excited. <laughs> a little bit of both. Okay. What is the one kitchen utensil you can't live without? Ooh. Um, outside of like the basics of like a knife and cutting board, I assume. Um, sure. All right. Uh, I think it has to be my microplane grater. 
That is a great answer. I think a knife is a very like professionally trained chef answer. <laughs> Whereas like a microplane is a little more like flavor based kind mm-hmm, of answer. Mm-hmm. Like grating some fresh Parmesan cheese or getting some lemon zest or if you're using whole nutmeg or cinnamon. Yeah. No other. It's irreplaceable. Irreplaceable. I, I have to, my microplane gets a heck of a lot of use to. Um, okay. Thank you so much for joining us, Aaron. Um, and if you want to find Aaron, you can go to his blog, thehungryhutch.com. He is also very active on Instagram at thehungryhutch. Mm-hmm. Where else can people find you and your work, Aaron? Um, you can find some of my writing on guide.michelin.com. I just published a profile of a chef called Maria Russell from Chicago. She's a black woman and got a Michelin star, which is one of the first. Wow. Um, One of the first like ever or in Chicago? Ever. (laughs) Okay. Um, And yeah, I share a lot of my work on Twitter always also at the Hungry Hutch. So you can always find the latest that I've been reading and writing there. All right. And I am Valerie. You can find me on Instagram as well at foodie in New York or on my blog, foodieinnewyork.com. And this is Why Food Podcast. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook um, at Why Food Podcast and also on Heritage Radio Network. Thank you so much for tuning in, everyone. See you next week. Why Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.